HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Dylan Hoyer, a communications associate and audio producer at Heritage Radio Network. Today we're asking, are corporations defining national dietary guidelines? We'll hear from Katie Kiefer, host of HRN's What Doesn't Kill You, in conversation with Greta Moran. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we are going to be talking about the new federal dietary guidelines. And my guest is Greta Moran. She is an independent journalist who writes for The Atlantic, Grist, Pacific Standard, The Guardian, Teen Vogue, uh, The New Republic, Quartz, Civil Eats, which is where I read this story, The Cut, Popular Science, The New Yorker Online, and elsewhere. My God, girl. Their conversation was inspired by a recent article Greta wrote for Civil Eats titled, Questions Remain About Big Food's Influence on the New Dietary Guidelines. Greta argues that the most surprising thing about these new guidelines is how similar they are to the ones issued five years prior. Her takeaway is not what has changed, but what hasn't. And she has some ideas about what should. Together, Katie and Greta take us through what these guidelines are, how they reverberate throughout our food system and culture, and the extent to which they're swayed by corporate interest, which may be more widespread than you think. Katie and Greta will take it from here. So I thought your story was really thoughtful and brought up some of the many conflicts of interest that I think the American public needs to be aware of um, in in how these dietary guidelines are issued. So let's start with a quick review of why they actually matter, because very few Americans, in fact, consciously follow any dietary guidelines, as we know. So why, why are they so important? So they're the only federal guidelines on nutrition, and they've been around since 1980. So that's itself is a a big deal. But then they're also used in an array of federal food assistance programs. So the National School Lunch Program and SNAP benefits, um, the Elderly Nutrition Program, and the Indian Reservation and Supplemental Nutrition Program. 
And then beyond those programs, they're used by educators and policymakers, other professionals. And, you know, most people don't go around to the grocery store like with these guidelines in their back pocket, but they are. So they are they are pretty influential. And in, I think how we think about food because they are such a primary tool used by educators. And, and that's why your article really struck me was because the importance of these guidelines is influenced by a variety of factors. But before we get into that, I want, it, I want you to explain how the guidelines are, are established, who writes them, and who sets the research agenda that decides what questions they're going to address when they, when they start developing new guidelines every five years. Yeah, they are written by the Department of Health and Human Services and USDA. But before that, the first step in the process is there is a scientific advisory committee that provides a report that acts as recommendations for the final guidelines. And then after those recommendations come out, the USDA and Department of Health and Human Services write the final guidelines. And then this year for the first time, the Department of Health and Human Services and USDA also set the scope of the research agenda. So they came up with 80 questions that then the Scientific Advisory Committee explored. So that was unique to this year. And then also um, up until 2005, that Scientific Advisory Committee also wrote the final guidelines. So you see over time, the agencies have had more influence over the guidelines. Let's talk a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities of the scientific committee selection process to corporate influences. That really struck me in your article. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So that was something that I spoke with Ashka Nike at Corporate Accountability, um, their research advocacy group. And she said that the process is really vulnerable to corporate influence at, at every step of the way, beginning with the nomination process and and, then, and in that nomination process, trade groups and industry groups are able to nominate the participants to the Scientific Advisory Committee. And this year, nine out of the 20 participants were nominated by the food and beverage industry. And then 75% had ties to the food and beverage industry. And that's research by corporate accountability. So one of the things that really struck me in your article was that the, the recommendations on sugar intake and alcohol consumption were basically unchanged, curiously enough. Uh, what happened there? So the Scientific Advisory Committee, I mean, they wrote this really extensive 835-page report. And within that report, there are two key recommendations around sugar and alcohol consumption. For alcohol consumption, they recommended that men limit their intake to one drink per day. And in previous guidelines, it was two per day. And then they also recommended that sugars be 6% rather than um, the previous guideline of 10% of one's daily calories. So that was based on an extensive report, a pretty rigorous scientific process, according to Sarah Reinhardt at Union of Concerned Scientists, and it didn't make it into the final guidelines. And so that, that was a really one of the more blatant areas of potential ind industry influence. For sure. So in other words, these recommendations to reduce your alcohol consumption for, to one a day for men and to reduce your sugar consumption from 10 to six, these were just recommendations. So they didn't actually 
wind up as part of the federal dietary guidelines. And you can see how those two suggestions in and of themselves would conceivably have represented, you know, loss of revenue for those industries. And so I, I thought that was a very clear example of where those lobbies, you know, had some significant impact uh, when it came to how the USDA and Health and Human Services, both government agencies, ended up writing the guidelines. Because again, let's go back to the fact that in the past, the scientists wrote the guidelines. And then in the last 15 years, that has moved. You know, in the past five years ago, when they were doing the guidelines, there were some very interesting um, suggestions. For example, the guidelines suggested that a plant-based diet might be better. That didn't come anywhere near this particular set of guidelines. And then also there were questions five years ago about how much meat you should eat, how much salt you should eat, um, you know, questions about ultra-processed foods. And you pointed out to me that those, those were not even addressed. What happened there? This year, for the first time, the agencies, Health and Human Services and the USDA, determine the scope of the guidelines. And so they excluded red and processed meat, salt consumption, ultra processed food, um, sustainability, climate change, all social issues, race. Those are all not within the, they came up with 80 questions for the advisory committee to explore. And those issues were all not part of it. And then even before then in 2015, when there was, um, as you're saying, a lot of conversation around plant-based diets. And for the first time, the, the advisory committee recommended a plant-based diet because it's more sustainable. And they linked meat consumption to greenhouse gas emissions for the first time. So that was really significant. But then that ultimately didn't make it into those final guidelines because the agencies determined that it was outside of the scope after the meat industry really extensively lobbied against that. And um, just a, a couple months later in 2016, the scope was more formally limited in a, a bill. Literally in a bill that was passed saying we can't, that dietary guidelines should not be including issues of sustainability or, I don't know, racial questions around diet and how diet has an impact on the health and well-being of, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, which, of course, we've seen, you know, writ large in the COVID epidemic. Yeah, and it didn't explicitly say that, but it did limit the guidelines to, it was an agriculture appropriations bill. It limited the guidelines to just um, nutrition and dietary science. So the way that has been then applied is by excluding all of those other really important issues. But let's talk for a second about the public commenting process on the guidelines, because there is a process for that. Those comments come from whom? Where, where do they come from? The majority comes from industry groups, but then also anyone is able to submit a public comment. Citizens can submit a public comment if they want to. And so there's a comment period on the draft conclusions of the advisory committee. And then after that advisory committee came out with their recommendations, there was another comment period. And in the initial comment period, the group corporate accountability found that 70% of the comments came from industry groups. So it's, it's pretty staggering. And then one thing that I found interesting was in the 
oral comments, um, which took place on August 11th. There was a representative from the Distilled Spirits Council and then another representative from the Beer Institute. And they both made a really similar argument saying that there wasn't a, quote, preponderance of evidence to support the alcohol recommendations and that it was going against the advisory committee's charter to make scientific-based recommendations. And then the very next day, um, we had... 27 members of Congress send a letter to the USDA and HHS secretaries, you know, using the same argument, using this, the same phrase, preponderance of evidence, and, and making the same argument around the committee's charter. So I thought that was pretty striking. Were they all Republican or was it a bipartisan? Uh, it was a bipartisan anti-scientific effort. You, you made a point of saying that the, the 27 politicians who had written this, um, you know, letter supporting the distillery, uh, you know, lobby and the, and the beer lobby, um, that, that they also tended to be climate change deniers, funnily enough. Which it does surprise me if there are Democrats in there. I mean, I think the Democrats are pretty much on board with climate science, climate science. But, but why, did, why did you feel like that was a relevant um, comment to make about these politicians. Yeah. So I think their, their argument around there not being a preponderance of, of evidence and the science not being certain around the alcohol recommendation is really reflective of this like long industry tactic to dismiss established science on the grounds that there isn't enough evidence to draw a conclusion. And there's a super good, uh, book on this, um, The Merchants of Doubt by the historian Naomi Oreskes, where she really like traces out this history, starting with the tobacco industry, also used by fossil fuel companies to, to all make this similar argument that the science is uncertain. And so she says that, that they're weaponizing doubt and exaggerating scientific uncertainty, which is, you know, a normal part of the scientific process. And then you see these politicians that have like a history of downplaying climate science do the exact same thing for nutrition science. The ones that I pointed out were Representative Andy Harris and Representative Doug LaMalfa, who have both dispelled climate science using a similar argument. So the other thing that you mentioned in the article is an organization called ILSI, which got a big expose in the Times about a year and a half ago. And you know, one of their members is also in the Trump administration as USDA's acting chief scientist. And I, I just, you know, can you just remind people of what the ILSI is and sort of what their role has been in terms of kind of a shadowy group that has a lot to say about American nutrition, but doesn't have a big footprint. That acronym stands for the International Life Sciences Institute. And I would recommend that people go to that New York Times article because I think that really laid out clearly their role in shaping food policy throughout the world. And then the funding that they received from corporate food industry groups and agribusiness groups, um, including DuPont and Pepsi, General Mills, and then until very recently, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola just split from, from LC. And I think, you know, I think that's probably because they've been questioned more. And I think people have been really 
noticing and acknowledging that this this is a shadow pro sugar industry group. So uh, Shavonda Jacobs Young, uh, the chief scientist in the Trump administration's USDA, was also a, a government liaison for ILSE's board of trustees. Yeah. And then also half the participants on the advisory committee had ties to ILSE. That's disturbing. <laughs> yeah. So so we had we had nine. Let's review. We had nine people who were nominated by various corporate factions. Then we have another eleven people who may or may not be independent from ILSE. Can you give us a little, you know, clearer picture of what that influence might might have been? Well, the tricky thing is I, beyond that, those connections, um, it's not clear how, what role that influence may have played if it, if it did play a role at all. So, um, yeah, I think that this reporting was looking mostly at areas that, the process is susceptible to corporate influence, but you know, I, I would be curious to find more answers and as to how. Yes. Well, what I'd like to see is is you know scientists, and I know it's really hard to find them. I mean, I remember back in the day I used to do publicity for books, and I, I remember doing publicity for a fantastic book called University Inc., which made a very compelling case about how much industry influences uh, even the best intended scientists in throughout the university system in our country and probably around the world um, because you know colleges and universities can't possibly fund uh, as much research as these scientists want to pursue and so they are of course ever obliged to, f- to look for grants and and money from various individuals uh, and entities and those are often corporations which then skew the science the way that they want them to so um, you know the this, this whole uh, sort of difficulty in, in identifying someone who is sort of industry free or, or, you know, really literally a free thinker or somebody who isn't beholden in some way to some corporate entity is, 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 is a challenge. What can be done to alter this trajectory? Is there a way, do you think, to find um, less influenced, you know, scientists to work on the advisory committee? Yeah, and just also related to the the last point you made, I think because I think it's it's true that it's really hard to find scientists without industry connections, um, and that's partially because um, and this is something that Ashka Nike at Corporate Accountability talked to me about. It's hard to find funding for many people that work in the field of nutrition science that is outside of corporate funding sources. And then there's also um, a lot of uh, peer-reviewed studies, too, that that receive corporate funding. And she pointed out that even the journal, it's a peer-reviewed journal, Nutrition Reviews, it's published by Oxford University Press and ILSI. So the problem with the dietary guidelines extends so far beyond the dietary guidelines to, to a certain extent to the field of dietary science as well. Although there's also really rigorous science, of course, being done within this field. But she recommended that there be more transparency within the broader field, too, about corporate funding and and more resources outside of corporate funding pools. And then uh, she also recommended prohibiting trade and industry groups from nominating participants to the advisory committee. 
and creating more transparency around the committee members' um, industry ties, and then ensuring that the officials at HHS and USDA also don't have industry ties, which is looking more promising now. This was really, really interesting. Thanks for writing such a great article, and I look forward to reading more of your work. Thanks for listening to The Big Food Question. You can find Greta's article, the link to her full interview on What Doesn't Kill You, and more resources with information in the show notes. Stick around to hear what makes our show possible. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest-growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Katie Kiefer and Greta Moran. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and Jenny Dorsey. This episode was produced by Katie Kiefer and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer for this episode is Armin Spengen. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.